Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 249, Pius VII. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So today is one of those episodes where you have to pick up right where we left off last week. We can't really get through today's Pope's early life in a meandering way. The last episode left us with such a tremendous cliffhanger, and we really have to know what happened. So let's get to it. So last week, the French revolutionary armies led by Napoleon marched into Rome, declared it a republic, dragged the Pope off into exile, and he died in Valence, France. The French newspapers declared him pious the last. So put yourselves in the shoes of a pious Catholic at that time. The French revolutionary armies are marching around Europe, seemingly unstoppable. The Pope has died in exile. Rome is occupied. In France, they're getting rid of any trace of the old regime of Christendom. Even they got rid of the days of the week. They proclaim new feasts of reason and enlightenment instead of the old ones of Christmas and Easter. You might fear that the French newspapers were right. Maybe this is the end of the papacy. Maybe this is the end of how things are in normal, the end of Christianity. And on top of all that, just before the conclave was to begin, that young general Napoleon took control of France completely in a coup d'etat. Now, the cardinals couldn't meet like usual due to the French armies in Rome for the conclave. And Pope Pius VI had prepared for this, and he had said in a bull before he died that the cardinals could meet in another country under the protection of a Catholic ruler, and that country could be chosen at the discretion of the cardinal dean. The cardinal dean on the death of Pope Pius VI chose Venice as the location for the conclave. It was not allied with France, it still had the church, and it was close enough in Italy. The conclave began on December 1st, 1799, and lasted 104 days. Like previous conclaves, this one was split between two different factions, one vaguely Austrian and one vaguely Spanish. And eventually, the conclave came to the compromise candidate of the relatively young Benedictine bishop, Cardinal Barnaba Chiaramonti. Cardinal Chiaramonti was created a cardinal by Pope Pius VI and was a close collaborator with the previous pope. Plus, he wanted to show the continuity with his predecessor, so he took the name Pius VII. Not Pius the Last, there is another Pius, Pius VII. Barnaba Chiaramonti was born on August 14, 1742 in Cesena in northern, north of Rome. He was the son of local nobility, and if this sounds familiar, it's because I said nearly the same exact thing about last week's Pope, Pope Pius VI. In fact, the cardinals during the conclave that elected Chiaramonti were a little concerned that perhaps they were related and that one family was going to just dominate the papacy because they were both from the same place. They were not, but the fact that Chiaramonti was from the same town as his predecessor certainly helped his advancement. Now, Barnabo was not the only vocation in his family. His older brother became a Jesuit and his older sister a nun. He was the youngest and at a fairly early age was admitted to the Benedictine monastery. His father died when he was young, and once Barnaba was out of the house, his mother became a Carmelite nun. After Barnaba made his first vows with the Benedictines, he took the religious name Brother Gregorio and began his theological studies, eventually studying at the Anselmo University in Rome. After his studies, he was ordained to the priesthood on September 21, 1765, and then he taught for several years in Rome and in Parma. He returned eventually to become the abbot of his home monastery in Cesena, but then in 1775, when his fellow Cesanian was elected Pope Pius VI, Father Gregorio Caramanti was called to Rome to live and serve at St. Anselmo. He became the new Pope's confessor, and he continued to serve in that capacity in Rome. In December of 1782, he was named the Bishop of Tivoli, just outside of Rome. Not long afterwards, in 1785, the Pope named Father Gregorio Cardinal and transferred him to the northern Italian diocese of Imola, where Cardinal Caramanti was to spend 15 years. He was a devoted bishop. 
He focused on his diocese. He was working on reforming the clergy and being attentive to the needs of the people. But things started getting complicated in 1793 with the French Revolution, and Pope Pius VI asked Cardinal Chiaramonti to return to Rome to consult regarding on how to respond. He went back to Imola soon afterwards, and he soon had to deal with it firsthand, as French troops invaded in 1796. And here he was faced with a dilemma, how to respond. Some in the city wanted him to be passive, let the French just pass through, don't try and stand up to them. Others wanted a full rejection of the French, including military help. Cardinal Chiaramonti was in general inclined towards the former option, but he was required to pay the French army camped in his city to keep them from looting the place. But on the whole, he tried to appease the invaders. When they left a couple of months later, the more militant factions of the town rose up against him and drove him out of the city because he was too conciliatory, so that he had to go back to his home in Cesena to stay safe. Now, the Pope again recalled him to Rome in 1797, and he was present for the signing of the Treaty of Tolentino, which we heard about last week. As a part of the treaty, his diocese of Imola was officially given away from the Papal States to form the new Cisalpine Republic, a vassal state in Italy that the Revolutionary Army set up. Cardinal Chiaramonti wrote a pastoral letter to his flock, saying that as best as possible they should peacefully give in to the French invaders. When he returned, he preached a famous homily on Christmas Day, again counseling conciliation, and at the same time saying that democracy wasn't inherently anti-Catholic. Democracy, though, could only flourish if it was rooted in a Christian worldview and understood Christian morality. He preached, quote, Yes, my dear brothers, be good Christians, and you will be excellent Democrats. In the summer of 1799, the Austrians and Russians liberated northern Italy, which caused Cardinal Chiaramonti to rejoice, but his joy was short-lasting. News arrived of the death of his benefactor, Pope Pius VI, in August of 1799, and Cardinal Chiaramonti found himself in Venice at the Conclave, as we have just discussed, and became Pope Pius VII on March 14, 1800. He was in Venice, and they didn't have a papal tiara to crown him with, so the women of Venice made a papier-mâché tiara and covered it with their jewels, and it was so much more comfortable than the heavier ones that were traditionally worn that the Pope kept it even after returning to Rome. His most important early decision was choosing the fairly young Cardinal Erclo Consalvi as his Secretary of State. The two of them were a good team, and they had to work hard in the years ahead. The defeat of the French in northern Italy by the Austrians and Russians gave an opening for the Pope to return to Rome, which happened in July of 1800. But he certainly wasn't out of the woods yet. And there was reason, though, to hope. Just before the conclave, Napoleon had taken power in France, and he was much more practical, much less revolutionary than the governments that preceded him. When Napoleon passed through northern Italy in June of 1800, he told the local bishop in Vercelli to go to Rome and tell the Pope that Napoleon wanted to give the Pope the present of 30 million French Catholics. He wanted to restore some papal prerogatives over France, reestablish the church there, and through that, in some way, to bolster his own authority as having come to this agreement with the Pope. The Pope sent his Secretary of State, Cardinal Consalvi himself, to Napoleon to negotiate, and an agreement was reached in 1801. It permitted the return of worship to France and the approval of bishops in France to the Pope. But at the last second, Napoleon included some provisions which limited the Pope significantly, and so it wasn't a perfect deal. Then, in 1802, Napoleon was named Emperor of France, and what do we know in this podcast about emperors? That they need to be crowned by the Pope. And Napoleon controlled Europe, so he could basically tell the Pope to get up here and crown him. So Pope Pius VII went to Paris, and when he got there, the French negotiated a significant amount of changes to the traditional coronation rite, the most important being that Napoleon would crown himself and the Pope would just bless him. Now, contrary to popular belief, Pope Pius knew about this in advance, and he begrudgingly accepted it. But in general, he was treated as one more ornament of Napoleon's grandeur instead of the vicar of Christ. 
He was treated shabbily and kind of shunted off to the side. Now, afterwards, the Pope returned to Italy, but the deal with Napoleon did not get better. The War of the Third Coalition broke out in 1803, which led to the defeat of Austria and Prussia at the famous Battle of Austerlitz, but also the defeat of the French Navy at the famous Naval Battle of Trafalgar. A portion of the war occurred in northern Italy, and after the French triumph over Austria, much of northern Italy was ceded to Napoleon, and he took the papal city of Ancona during the process, despite the Pope's protests. The Russians and English during the war occupied Naples, which prompted Napoleon to send his armies to invade Naples as well. And in the middle of all that, he invaded the Papal States in 1808, and then in 1809, he annexed them to the French Empire. The Pope was again without a country, and was again taken into captivity by the French armies. He was brought to Grenoble in France and moved around for some time, refusing the whole while to give in to Napoleon's demands and to approve his running of the church in France. After the disaster for Napoleon in Russia, the emperor ordered the Pope to be returned to Italy, and on the way there, the Pope was rescued by a group of Hungarian cavalrymen who escorted him back to Rome, where he was welcomed home in triumph in January of 1814, and not long after that, Napoleon was deposed. After his return to Rome, the Pope resurrected the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, which his predecessor Clement XIV had suppressed, as we heard about a couple episodes ago. But though he had returned to Rome, it wasn't clear he was still in charge. The Papal States had been annexed by Napoleon, and it wasn't a done deal that they would be returned to Pope Pius. He sent his Secretary of State, Cardinal Consalvi, to the Congress of Vienna, and there Cardinal Consalvi convinced the triumphant allies to restore the Papal States at the conclusion of the war. Cardinal Consalvi was the real mover and shaker of the remainder of the papacy of Pius VII. He attempted to reform the government of the Papal States, fix the problems caused by the war with Napoleon, and also institute modest reforms that enabled the papal government to respond to all the changes in society. Consalvi and Pius VII determined on a course of international neutrality for the papal states, which was a big deal. Henceforth, they would take no side in the conflict between nations. Now, these reforms were extremely controversial within the papal states, and people were split between those who wanted reform and those who thought that any reform, even as modest as Cardinal Consalvi's work was, was a betrayal of the traditional ideas of royal government. The Pope was forgiving and moderate to Napoleon as well. He allowed his family to take refuge in Rome after his exile to St. Helena. And Pope Pius also wrote to the British to allow Napoleon a priest chaplain to care for his spiritual needs and to reconcile him with the church, which indeed happened. When Napoleon died in 1821, he had fully reconciled with the church and received the sacraments. Now, the constant strife of his pontificate took a toll on Pope Pius VII, and he died on August 20th, 1823. His papacy was the sixth longest in history and one of tremendous upheaval which throughout it all, the Pope remained firm in the faith. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica and succeeded by Pope Leo XII. We will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Albemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.